As a 14-year-old boy, I, I don't know if any of you have pen pals. I had a pen pal called Jerome uh, in France. I went over to go and see him in a little town called Moulin, just south of Lyon um, in France. And uh, this is kind of the heart of the Champagne region. Um, I learned a little French, a little French, but I was uh, thoroughly um, just spoiled by this family who hosted me for two weeks. And I had a great time with this guy called Jerome. Not in contact now, can't speak a word of French, but that's my embarrassment. Um, but on the last night we were there, um, they prepared for me, this family, this, this kind of wonderful feast to say, we've had a great time and off you go sort of thing. The highlight of the meal was this enormous joint of fillet steak. Uh, it was a local kind of delicacy, uh, and uh, the mother had worked tirelessly to get this prepared uh, for us. And um, the room was decorated kind of minimally, the kind of shutters were opened, it was a beautiful kind of French scene, arable farmland outside. The champagne had been flowing for hours, even for the young children, a little bit watered down, but there you go, it's France, you know, as you can imagine. The whole extended family, all these farmers had come round, one of them on a tractor, which was utterly cool in my book. Uh, but there we go. We had tiger prawns for starters, which I'd never had up at that, at that stage in my life. Picking off all the bits, it was great. And then we came to this huge bit of beef. Amidst this massive round of applause, this, the, the, the mother walked in and uh, they placed it on the table. The father began to carve very, very, you know, kind of, this is brilliant. And then the first plates of this wonderful joint of beef went to the ladies around the table. I thought, that's okay, I'm the guest, but, you know, they're the ladies, so, you know, off we go. Then the others in the extended family, they all got their bits of beef uh, as well. And now I thought, because of our culture, I thought they were being a little bit rude at this stage. But, you know, as the guest, I expected to be served first. But then I noticed what was happening. They served the beef, one bit from that side, then one bit from that side. And as they went into the the joint of beef, I realised it was getting, shall we say, less and less cooked. And by the time it got to the centre, which was my time, I had the privilege, apparently, uh, the tradition was, to give the guest this central piece of beef, which, if probably left on its own, it probably could have walked off the plate. Now, South Africans, you're probably thinking, that's a great, lovely, kind of very, very rare piece. For a 15-year-old lad from England, that was a shocking uh, thing, and I was horrified. But I couldn't ask for it to be taken back to be cooked. It was just explained to me that this was the tradition, this was the honour, this was the privilege. It just didn't look ready for me, though. It was not ready for human consumption. (laughs) Now, the point of that long introduction was this. We like things to be ready, don't we? We like things to be ready before we begin. We like things to be cooked before they're, they're eaten. And for the impatient, those words, they're a frustration. Uh, for the meticulous by nature, those things are quite a comfort, aren't they? But we all agree in part in that sentiment. We need things to be ready before we can start something cooked before you eat. For example, you know, let's say you're going out for, for, for the evening or so on. You'd like to get ready before you go out. And that would be different for different people. We like to you know, chew some clothes out, put a lick of paint on our faces, um, you know, brush, no, maybe not, but um, have a shower, uh, that, those kind of things, all to get ready. Think of Olympians, Paralympians and so on. All they do, they get ready for that event. There's lots of preparation that takes place. Everything needs to be ready before we can begin. 
And the book of Acts is, is, is no different in that sense. The writer Luke, as throughout his gospel, portrays this sense of delayed excitement because certain things have got to be in place before the main event can happen. That is the full announcement of the kingdom of God. Luke's gospel begins with all sorts of preparations as well, as you'll know. Um, The inauguration of the kingdom of God begins, it starts with the coming, the taking on of flesh of Jesus coming as as a baby boy. Well, so too with this second volume of Luke's. It begins with preparation. The book of Acts begins with the preparation of the apostles being made ready to take the message of the kingdom of God out into the world. But also, as we'll see in our passage, Jesus needs to finish his work on earth to make everything ready for that message to go out through the apostles. Now, verse 1 introduces us to the author, as we see. In my former book, Theophilus, or whatever it says, I wrote to you all that Jesus began to do and teach. Luke is introducing who he's writing to, but all about what he's going to do. The purpose of the book. Now, as I said, I'm not going to introduce you to all the kind of structures and the major themes that go in the book every single week, but I'll give you a few tasters um, as we go through uh, today. But let me note at the beginning, I've put on your outline there, three purposes for the book of Acts as we begin. Luke's purpose as the writer is firstly to write an historical account. From Luke chapter 1 and the first four verses of Luke's gospel, as he opens both volumes very similarly, uh, he shows in Acts as well that these are carefully researched historic accounts sourced by eyewitnesses, which is key later on, written in an orderly manner. Written for Christians in general, as um, as comes up throughout the Gospels and and the Book of Acts, concerning what is happening during and after Christ's time on earth. Acts especially recording the spread of the news of the Lord Jesus and his kingdom. And there's all sorts of markers which go throughout the book of Acts about how the word spread to various places and the numbers that it affected and who responded. Showing again and again that what we have in front of you here is an historic account. I'll give you, I could give you lots of um, uh, verses for that, but we'll, we'll move on. We'll, we'll pick up those later on. Firstly, it's historic. Secondly, purpose. Second purpose is to establish Christ's ministry. Acts is about what Jesus continued to do and teach. Um, Luke, that is in the volume one of this this kind of two-volume work uh, of the same story, shows what Jesus did in his earthly ministry. Acts, volume two of this kind of two-volume work, shows what Jesus did in his heavenly ministry after he's ascended into heaven. What he continues to do by his spirit and through his apostles. So Luke's gospel is about Jesus' earthly ministry. Acts is about Jesus' heavenly ministry. Once he's ascended and given the spirit and now working through the apostles. You see the link in verse 1. In my former book, Luke is saying, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach. And as we'll see, that implies that in Acts, what we're seeing is what Jesus continues to do and teach. Third purpose, to establish apostolic authority. See, the book of Acts is all about what Jesus and what God does through his apostles. Sent out by Jesus, these men were founders of the early church, as we'll read about. This new stage of God's uh, plan with his people. 
And Luke wants to establish very early on that these 12 apostles of Jerusalem and later on the Apostle Paul for the Gentile world, they are authorised by Christ to be his witnesses. That is, to speak about and interpret all the things that Jesus has said about himself and that he'd done amongst them. Now this is absolutely crucial because it's the apostles who are the authors or the eyewitnesses who the authors kind of relate to us of the New Testament. It was one of the fundamental inclusions of how a book was included into the New Testament that they had to be apostolic of an apostle's origin, an eyewitness account of an apostle or a letter of an apostle. So it is the book of Acts that now records that Jesus has authorised these people to be those witnesses, the witnesses who we read of in our Bibles in front of us today. It is critically important because it provides historical background to all the letters that we will read and study throughout the year, for example in Romans. Because as you read of Paul's missionary journeys, for example later on in the book of Acts, you will read how he visits places, numbers of places, And those are the places which he establishes churches and then writes letters to, which we have in all the letters which follow the book of Acts um, in our Bibles. Acts, therefore, is crucial in historic background to all the letters that we study. So three purposes uh, written down there for you. Now let's just jump into the text, shall we? Let's look at verse 1 to 5 to begin with and see how it all begins. And see how these apostles are being made ready to proclaim the kingdom of God. To the world. So first point, as written down on your sheets, Jesus' mission was continued through the witness of his apostles. First one, as I already mentioned, points us back to all that Jesus had begun to do in his earthly ministry. But the implication is that now he's going to continue his ministry. Now he's in heaven. And the transition point between those two periods is recorded both in Luke 24, but also here, here in Acts 1. His ascension into heaven is, if you like, the hinge point of those two ministries. That is what has changed um, things here. And it begins this second stage of his ministry, now through his apostles. Therefore, this, verses 2 to 5 introduce us to the, these apostles through whom Jesus will keep working through, uh, as we see in the book of Acts. Now, if you cast your eyes down, look at verse 2 if you can. You'll see, until the day he was taken up to heaven after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. Now, I don't want to be a a kind of pedantic here, but it's somewhat misplaced there, the word chosen. It kind of does a disservice to what is going on here. Because it would better read, after giving instructions to the apostles, chosen through the Holy Spirit. Now what is meant, other translations put it that way, but what the important point of that is, is simply that, that Jesus isn't withdrawn here. It's suddenly he's not ascended and then kind of like, right, you off you go and you get on with it. The point here is that the chosen nature of the apostles through the Holy Spirit shows that Jesus remains in control despite being in his heavenly ministry. Jesus' work is continuing, yes in a new way, but he is the one who's going to be doing the choosing, giving authority to. Literally, his sent ones here, that's what the apostles, apostles means. What are they chosen for though? We know from Luke's gospel that they've already been trained, haven't they? They've been sent out on a number of times, on a number of, kind of journeys themselves, sent out to preach the good news. But here, 
we see them embarking on this kind of intensive course of kind of 40 days training with Jesus between the time of his resurrection and ascension. Can you imagine that? It's a remarkable time, isn't it? I mean, can you imagine waking up in the morning, your alarm clock goes off and you think, I'm about to go and meet the risen Lord Jesus Christ. And he's going to open up what would have been scrolls at that time from the Old Testament and, and give me many convincing proofs and, and demonstrate to me how he's fulfilled various parts of the Old Testament. Can you imagine waking up to that? I doubt you'd press snooze, would you? I mean, it'd be a phenomenal thing uh, to, you know, right boys, let's get, let's get Habakkuk open today and see how I've fulfilled this and this and this. It'd be amazing, wouldn't it? Well, three things we see of this intensive training to ready the apostles. I've noted them down on your outlines there. In order that they could continue Jesus' ministry on earth when he is now risen and ascended in heaven. Firstly, they were instructed. Notice that. They're not left on their own. To kind of make it up as, as they kind of see fit in, the, in and of themselves. They were instructed. They didn't go around saying, yeah, I've seen the risen Lord Jesus Christ. I think it kind of means this. Yeah, I'm not sure, but I'll, I'll write that down anyway, shall I? That sounds good to me. No. They were instructed by Jesus to understand what it meant in the things that they'd seen, but also what they've heard. Jesus told them and showed them of the significance of their, his ministry, as shown in the Old Testament. So, why? So the apostles were the authorised interpreters of what he had said and done. Why? For our benefit. And so we can read about it. But also for our example. That we don't see fit to make things up as we see fit, but we go to the objective authorised word of God. Secondly, they were convinced. Look at verse 3. After his suffering, he showed himself to these men and gave many convincing proofs. That he was alive. Now, when you read that, don't you just think maybe it's me being a bit cheeky, but I can't think, wouldn't one suffice? You know, one proof that he was alive, wouldn't that suffice? Jesus, you're great. Thank you very much. But I kind of, you kind of guess that who is Jesus dealing with? He's dealing with people like you and me who need continual reminders. We're imperfect human beings. And notice how much they were convinced. He appeared to them for a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. That seems relentless, doesn't it? And it's substantiated in another, a number of other places as well. For example, in 1 Corinthians 15, where Jesus appeared and, and, and you know, demonstrated his resurrected state to over 500 people in a crowd on just one occasion. But the purpose is to ready the apostles. And it doesn't end here, because lastly we see in verses 4 and 5, they were to be empowered. Look at verse 4. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptised with the water, but in a few days you will be baptised with the Holy Spirit. I guess the temptation, you know, would be to just nip home back to Galilee for many of them. Go and have mum's dinner, you know, get, get a bit of comfort, you know, and so on. But rather they were to wait for this gift. The gift that had been spoken about in the Old Testament. The, the gift that Jesus had promised that would empower them. The Spirit would be given 
to empower these apostles to be witnesses to the whole of the world. It would be the, the, the apostles that would be empowered and they would remember Jesus' teaching. Just as promised in John's Gospel on a number of occasions. It, it is not some kind of detached academic kind of literary genius who records Jesus' work. It is the best people possible we have here. Don't just dismiss them and say, oh, they were just a bunch of fishermen. They can't possibly record history well or what happened well. No, we've got the best people here. We've got eyewitnesses. That, their accounts are so compelling. What we read about in, in the Bible is what they actually saw and what they actually heard. Because if you're an eyewitness, an event grips you, doesn't it? You see it visually. And, and you respond in your mind. It, it captures you. I remember a few years ago, we had a fire in our, our previous house. And uh, can you imagine, you know, two o'clock in the morning, we had a little fire in the, kind of the attic room. And... Um, Barnaby and Zach, we kind of like ran them outside and got them in the car and fire engines galore. I mean, it wasn't frightening us so for them. They were just utterly excited that Fireman Sam had come with all of his friends down their road with three fire engines and the ladders and the hoses. And it was just fantastic. They were eyewitnesses to this event. And boy, did they tell us. And every single person that came to our, do you know what happened? We had firemen in our house, in our very house, up here. They went up there and it was just fantastic. Well, these men have seen and they'd heard the works of Jesus. But now they are waiting patiently for the Spirit who would empower them to continue Christ's work, preaching the message of the kingdom of God and writing an account of his work. See, what we have in the New Testament isn't some kind of developmental kind of piece of literature which you can suddenly you know, adapt and, and kind of change over time. No, these apostles are instructed, convinced authors, empowered by the coming Holy Spirit. And what we have in front of us is authoritative, can never be changed, is powerful because they are God's words coming through. His spirit and his appointed apostles. That is so encouraging, isn't it? To us right now today. Because these are the empowered and instructed words of Jesus himself. Coming through his apostles. They are God's words. It might be helpful to dwell on that tomorrow morning as you pick up your Bibles and pray. Maybe you haven't done that for a while. What you are reading are the unchanging words of God. So although the apostles were humanly trained and convinced by Jesus, we are no less equipped. For what we have in our hands, they are the very words of God himself. His gospel messages here and the training notes for, for what we are to do are for all to see. We just need to read them. So then, Jesus' ministry was continued through the witness of his apostles. Secondly, see on the sheets there, Jesus' kingdom is established by the witness of the apostles. See that in verses 6 to 8. Cast your eyes down there, we'll, we'll walk through that now. So in verse 6, the apostles hear that the Spirit is going to be given. And from that, they make well quite a reasonable assumption. That is, that God's kingdom is about to arrive. Because in the Old Testament, again and again... When God's Spirit comes, it is the time, that is the moment that will bring about or bring in the kingdom of God. 
The pouring out of the Spirit was, if you like, the major sign for the promised blessing of God's kingdom rule. Now the apostles would have known the sequence, so their ears would prick up at this moment. They hear the Spirit's coming, they go, way, yeah, the kingdom is coming, just as we had imagined. And so they're still there, you get this odd question, well it's not an odd question, but the question of verse 6, in it they make three mistakes in their understanding of the kingdom of God. Can you spot them? Firstly, they make the mistake about the arrival of God's kingdom. Look at that, they say, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? That is, that they've got this expected imminent return of Jesus. They're expecting, oh, he's going to pop up to heaven for a while, take a bit of a breather, and he's going to come back again. Everything's going to be kind of restored to as we know before. Jesus has to correct them there. Look at verse 7. It's not for you to know the times or the dates that the Father has set by his own authority. Jesus is saying, I, even I don't know. Only God knows. Only God the Father knows. It's not now. I'm not going to return now. It's going to be a delay. Then they make their second mistake. Lord, at this time I'm going to restore the kingdom. The second understanding is not the, just the arrival of the, the kingdom of God, God's kingdom. It's also the nature of God's kingdom that they make a mistake about. See, they were expecting God to restore, as they say there, to bring back the same kind of national and political rule and kingdom that once God's people had enjoyed under the various kings that we can read about in the Old Testament. Jesus has to say that. Look at verse 8 if you can. But you will receive power, power being important there. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. Jesus is saying, you guys, you will exercise power when the Spirit comes, but not politically. For in the new kingdom, sharing in God's rule through Christ is how power is known. Not through political or monarchical means, so that is through a monarchy, through a king or so on. Certainly like nothing is being, certainly like what, what is being attempted in Israel right now since its inception in 1948. You know, that causes so much confusion and bloodshed both in American politics and also politics in the Middle East as well. So how then is this kind of power going to be, kind of be worked out? Well, Jesus says, through being my witnesses, my being my witnesses in Jerusalem. So the rule of God is established through Christ, but it's established through the preaching of Jesus' ministry. That is the preaching of the gospel Last misunderstanding of the apostles was regarding the extent of the kingdom. The apostles asked Jesus in verse 6 whether the nation of Israel, it's what the nation of Israel is going to be restored. They expected God's kingdom to still be kind of confined to, to just the people of Israel. But Jesus clarifies in verse 8, and if you're going to take home any verse today, get your eyes on verse 8. It's the most important verse, if you like, of this whole section of Acts. And he clarifies here the, what the extent of God's kingdom will be. As he says, the kingdom will go out and out in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Verse 8 is so important. Let me show you very briefly why. Because it acts, if you like, as, as the program of what is to come in, in, the, in the rest of the book. For you see, in chapters 2 to 7, what we'll see in, in the book of Acts is, is described there. The apostles are witnessing to Jerusalem, the beginning section of that verse 8. Chapters 8 to 11 then describe the witness of the apostles where? 
surprisingly, as verse 8, to Judea and Samaria. And then when you get to verse chapter 12 to 28 to the end, and you get to Paul's ministry, surprise, surprise. Verse 8, it is to the ends of the known earth, ending up in Rome. At the ends of the earth, it's a phrase which, of course, has its roots in the Old Testament. Back in Isaiah the prophet, um, in chapter 49, verse 6, God is, is promising through there of a servant. Of course, he's speaking of Christ there. He's, he's promising to, his, to the king. It is too small a thing for you to be my servant to restore the tribes of Jacob and bring back those of Israel I've kept. I will also make you, listen, a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring my salvation where? To the ends of the earth. The ends of the earth. Which is exactly what Jesus is saying is going to happen now through his apostles. So long ago, you see, God had promised that his kingdom would extend beyond Jerusalem, beyond the the nation of Israel, now to the whole world. Jesus instructs his apostles, therefore, to take the gospel message, the, the kingdom of God, beyond their comfort zones, to territories outside of Israel, now to the whole world. How is this good news of the kingdom of God to get out to the whole world? Well, here's where we finish, verse 9 to 11. Through the preaching and the witnessing of his apostles. Third point, Jesus' ascension launched the witness of his apostles. Now there are lots of references here of people looking up to the sky. I'm not suggesting we do that right now. But over his previous days, Jesus had gone and then he reappeared. Now his final leaving, if you like, he wants a bit of a show. Like, no, I'm only joking. Um, he wants it to be distinct. And of course it is. Verse 9, it's incredibly understated, isn't it? You haven't cast your eyes down on it. It's such a remarkable event, but it just seems so understated there. Before their very eyes, Jesus ascends into heaven. And in so doing, he's kind of publicly demonstrated he's God. That is his status. Because why? Well, look how he goes in a cloud of God's glory. Either you are consumed by a cloud of God's glory, destroyed by a cloud of God's glory, or you are enveloped and taken up. And Jesus shows in his purity and his status as God that he is enveloped and taken up. But through this event, he also begins a new stage of salvation history. That is, he begins his stage of now his ministry in heaven rather than on earth. But the significance of the ascension in this passage is shown in the inclusion that he will, he will now come back, he states. Elsewhere in the New Testament, you will know that the, when the ascension is mentioned, it is, it is shown to demonstrate that now that Christ has ascended, he will be the one who intercedes for us as a great high priest before the Father. But the significance of the ascension here is shown in his return that is mentioned. Returning visibly and in great glory. That is, he's coming back, he says, in the same way in verse 11. To take his people with him. But notice the imperative. Notice the instruction of verse 11. Have a look down there. What is the force there? The statement of the two messengers of God. What do they say to the apostles? Look what it says. Why do you stand here looking into the sky? It's a funny thing to say, isn't it? You can't think, give them a bit of a rest. They've had a bit of a 40-day intensive training situation. Isn't it fair that they have a bit of a glance into the sky? Something remarkable has just happened. Wouldn't it be okay to just ponder it for a moment, just crush your arms and go, hmm, that was fairly significant. That would be all right, wouldn't it? 
Why do God's messengers see fit to then say at this point, why do you stand here looking into the sky? Well, God says this to the apostles because they've got a job to do. They were, they were to wait in Jerusalem for the Spirit to come. And then they were to be Christ's witnesses to the ends of the earth. But they just stood there for a moment contemplating heaven. Rather than getting on with the job that they'd been made ready for. That they'd been trained for. If you like, their heads were in the clouds. Now we do know from the book of Acts, the rest of the 28 chapters that follow. That they just didn't stay there for very long. Thankfully they did kind of move on. And God prompted them and on they went and they responded in the most appropriate way. They took the gospel to the ends of the earth. And then other people took through time the gospel to us. We should be very thankful that they responded to this prompt. But I guess the, the helpful reminder here is this imperative still applies to us. Because Christ has still not returned. We still have this same glorious responsibility to be Christ's witnesses to the ends of the earth. And perhaps sometimes, just sometimes, we need to have a little nudge from God and say, Hey, come on, why do you stand here looking into the sky? We can sometimes feel so heavenly minded, so gazing on Christ. And that's such an important thing to do and to just dwell on Christ and just, oh, you're amazing. That's such a good thing. But sometimes, don't we? We just need a little nudge and say, you've got a job to do. You've got a job to do. It does seem that their response is appropriate, doesn't it? I mean, they look, they wait, they, they're looking in the sky, but thankfully their response is appropriate. They, they then do take the gospel out. Why? Because they're in awe of Christ. But like us, they might have been distracted as well. Just for a moment. Away from the job that they've been called to do. And we've got to think perhaps about our distractions. What are they? Are we perhaps focusing on those heavenly things a little bit too much and not being any earthly use to those around us in making the gospel known? I guess many of us have other distractions. Maybe it's our work that just consumes our time, our energy. Maybe it could be a relationship or lack of. It just consumes our emotions. All sorts of things distract us, don't there? There are so many things that can draw us from our responsibility to make the gospel of Christ known. So just have a think for a moment as we close. What can you do? What can you do toward the witness of Christ to the ends of the earth? What are you here for? You're here to spread the gospel, that apostolic witness of Christ to the world. That is to extend the kingdom of God to the ends of the earth, to the glory of God alone. What are you going to do? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, do thank you so much for this uh, remarkable story. Thank you that Jesus' ministry was not just uh, just a few short years on this earth, but continues through the apostles and these remarkable times we've been reading up, reading of, but also continues today through your Spirit and through your Word. Lord, as the apostles responded appropriately to the gift of the Spirit and also uh, to 
Jesus ascending into heaven and empowering them to continue his work, may we respond appropriately too. As we learn more over the coming weeks of the Spirit and all that he has uh, been given for and uh, to encourage us in, may we continue uh, to think carefully how we might respond appropriately, who we need to speak to with this wonderful saving uh, message of the kingdom of God. Challenge us, I pray. Comfort us, I pray. As we go through this coming week. Amen. Thank you, Andy. Well, I'm going to ask our musicians who are on their way to leave.